Father, we thank you for the <clears throat> salvation that we <clears throat> enjoy through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who makes that salvation real to us, who teaches us the Scriptures, who went through the centuries generating the text of Scripture, and then centuries more in preserving that Scripture through fire and storm that we today in our freedom, at least in our country, have the freedom and the opportunity to open the Word of God, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. And we are thankful for this because it is part of your continuing grace toward the human race and to us in particular. In Christ's name, amen. We've been working uh, with the event of uh, Pentecost and uh, since we are approaching the uh, last few weeks of the class, um, we ha next week, next Thursday, I'll, I'll be out of town again on business. This has been a bad spring. Uh, so it's about the third Thursday I've had to miss. So there won't be a class next Thursday, but there will be a class for all the, for the three following Thursdays. And then I guess the last Thursday of May is Memorial Day, and uh, that uh, thing here is going to be used for something. So what I'm going to try to do with the handout tonight that you have it introduces the last doctrinal section that goes with these events. Uh, remember that we've been following uh, over the years, we've had the class, we've uh, gone through uh, the scriptures uh, by event. And um, of course, when we got to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, last year, uh, we went through these four events and linked them all with a doctrine and it looks like I'm going to have to move this closer. There. Well, it's for some reason. Okay. So we have these four um, events in the life of Christ, and uh, we, we've just conti continued the theme of looking at the great events of Scripture and then linking these events with, with doctrines. And the reason, uh, just to review why we do that, is because, it, first of all, it feeds your mind's imagination. Oftentimes you can't grasp some of these things uh, quickly, uh, or in a crisis situation, and it's good to know these events because you can usually remember the biblical story faster than you can remember the truth that comes out of the biblical story. And it gives your mind and soul a chance to uh, have a tool, have some tools to, to cope with life. So that's why, and plus the fact, by learning it in this mode, um, it forces you to link the Bible with real history. So that if somebody tampers with history out here, you immediately, the light should flash that you can't deny this history without also denying the truth that goes with that. So you always, that's something that's true of the Christian faith. It's not true of most religions in the world. Christianity, as well as Judaism, is dependent upon historic revelation. God spoke in history. 
He didn't speak in a theoretical textbook. Real people in a real place, in real time, received the Word of God. So that's why we have these events. And of course, uh, this year, we've looked at two events beyond that. We've looked at the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and that is the heavenly origin of the church. So that after the cross of Christ, after he rises from the dead, so we have resurrection, then we have him going into heaven, and we call that the session. And it's that period, that point in history, which, by the way, uh, I think you'll agree that in all the years you may be going to church, can you remember one sermon you've ever heard on the session of Christ? Uh, I think I can remember one or two, but that's all. And you see, we've talked about the cross of Christ. At Easter, we talk about the resurrection of Christ. But often we forget that Jesus Christ is ascended and he is seated at the Father's right hand. And in a day when we're talking about uh, the the universe and the cosmos and all the rest of it, uh, part of the Christian faith, the essence of it, is that at the helm of the universe is the God-man. It's not a Martian. It's not somebody from Galaxy 550 somewhere. It's not some uh, other thing that's running the universe. But God runs it, but seated at the helm of the universe is our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that, we said, sets off the final phase of history uh, as we know it, because that begins an inter-Advent period until he comes again in judgment. So all during this time, you have God saving and salvation, the day of grace, prior to the judgment, prior to the end of history as we know it. And this is an important message, we as Christians, because people are always fussing at God because he allows evil. Well, isn't it interesting when the biblical answer to that is a future intervention when God takes care of the evil. Well, people don't like that either. So, hey, what's the problem here? We don't want evil, don't like it, but then we don't like the idea of God totally intervening in history in a miraculous way and solving the problem. And, of course, the reason is, in our hearts, there's rebellion, and we just don't like to do things God's way. That's the real reason. So, that's the age, the inter-Advent period. Well, right after Jesus Christ seated at the Father's right hand, the next thing, or one of the first things that he did to show that he arrived at the throne of God, according to promise, he sent the Holy Spirit. And that's on the day of Pentecost. And that doctrine thing that we just handed out, actually we should say the church age starts right here, this is the day of Pentecost. And we want to, in that section that we're going to start staying the next few weeks, when we get to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we're going to see one of his titles in the Trinity. Uh, you have the Father, you have Jesus Christ, who is said in church history to be eternally begotten of the Father. And that's the phrase we studied last year. Well, this year we're going to come to another phrase, the, the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, says one of the early, uh, early Catholic universal creeds. And there's a reason why that sounds so innocent, sounds like some little religious thing tacked onto a creed somewhere. 
we're going to see it's not just a little religious set of words. That was a thing that had divided Europe. And that the Eastern Church never bought into this. In the Eastern Church, it's God the Father that sends the Spirit, not Jesus Christ. And that has spelled centuries of a different attitude and view of life. So, I know it sounds theoretical and weird to say that, but I'm going to prove it to you. Um, in, in, we're going to mention how that has, has reflected in, in how uh, European history unfolded. It's, in fact, with us today because the Russian mentality uh, comes out of the Russian Orthodox Church, which comes out of the Greek Orthodox Church, which is the group that never bought into the idea that Jesus Christ is fully sharing the authority of God, and therefore Jesus Christ reigns over the Tsar, Jesus Christ reigns over the state, Jesus Christ is superior to every state government and power. Well, if you don't buy into that, then what happens if the Holy Spirit isn't sent by both the Father and the Son, it makes actually, in a, it works out to have a very anemic, impotent Christ. And this is why, historically, people in the eastern part of Europe have generally been statists. That is, they look to the state for their salvation. And they feel totally intimidated by rulers. And yet it's in the West, Germany, England, America, where you have the idea that there's law that transcends the state. That there comes times in history when the state, frankly, is wrong. And as a Christian, you have to say, I'm sorry, you know, I'll go to jail or I'll do this, but you're wrong. And, uh, and there's an objective standard. It's not just because we feel like saying that. Uh, people in China right now, this is one of the problems that the Chinese government just can't get it. Um, the men who are running China are so afraid. First of all, they've got millions and millions of people, to, to, and, and they're, they're worried about the pot boiling. And so they just can't stand the idea that there's a bunch of Chinese running around in China today who say that Jesus Christ is superior to Beijing. They, it's considered a personal insult. And it's, it's going to be considered more and more as, as the United States gets paganized further, uh, God doesn't give a revival, that we'll be, as Christians, faced with that kind of thing. So those are the things that are tied up with what looks like on the surface, just some theoretical thing here with Jesus Christ sending the Spirit. All right, we've looked now at Acts chapter 2. We've looked at what happened on the day of Pentecost, and we said <clears throat> that Peter made several conclusions about Pentecost. And we reviewed those last time, so I won't belabor the point. Um, but remember, Peter argued to the Jewish people that the sign of Pentecost, the speaking in, in supernatural languages, that that, or speaking supernaturally, other human languages, such that the Jews from the other places in the Eastern Mediterranean knew and recognized that language, that this was a signal <clears throat> that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be because he poured out the Spirit. Now, last time, if you'll turn to Matthew 22, because that's the background for Acts 2 and 3, Jesus had taught that parable in Matthew 22, verses 1 to 7. And it's, it's a good place to start tonight because we want to remember the early Jewish background in the book of Acts. <clears throat> 
because Acts is not an easy book to read and understand. In Matthew 22, Jesus foresaw the situation in which the nation Israel would reject him. So here, if I can draw a timeline earlier than the death of Christ, here's John the Baptist. Call him John the Baptist's message at the beginning of the Gospels was what? The Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. The kingdom of God is here. It's near. John was the predecessor and the precursor to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a prophet. Jesus Christ was the anointed one. That's what Christ means. In the same way that in the Old Testament... The king would come, but he would be introduced by the prophet. And that was the modus operandi of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Kings were not selected by people. Kings were not to be selected by political intrigue and plotting. And that's the stories of kings, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. You have uh, Solomon's mother, uh, Bathsheba. She's trying to work a deal with her husband and to move her son into the throne before this other wife of David moves her son into the throne. That's all political intrigue. And the reason we get those stories in the Bible is to show us that above all of that chaos in the home and the, the, the competing wives and the harem and the different sons and so on. All that, above that, is the Holy Spirit saying, I will select the right king. And, of course, it was Nathan the prophet and it were the other people in the Old Testament that really anointed those kings. Well, the Gospels, John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus Christ. When they came, they said to the nation Israel, here is the Messiah. If you want your kingdom, trust in the king. And they said no. There were a remnant that did, so you have some positive response. But most of the nation went negative. Proved by the death of Christ and so on. Now, after Jesus Christ rises from the dead and ascends into heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit on Acts chapter 2. And when that happens in Acts chapter 2, Peter in Acts 2 and Acts 3 now gives the second invitation. So here you have invitation number one. Here you have invitation number two. And Jesus himself said this was going to happen. So Matthew 22, again, just to look quickly at this parable, because it outlines for us the Gospels and the book of Acts, all in seven verses. Here is actually 70 years of history in seven verses of Scripture. Verse 1, Jesus answered and spoke to him in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. The wedding feast is analogous to the kingdom coming. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, invitation number one, and they were unwilling to come. There's a summary of all the Gospels. Then, verse 4 begins with the word, again. Again, invitation number 2. The king sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat and livestock are all butchered, everything is ready. And you can, can, you, can, this, can some of you see the irony in that? Do you see some sneaky theology in that little statement that we just read? 
Notice in verse 3, the first invitation is a straight-out invitation to the wedding. But notice in verse 4, what is said in addition to the first message? Something has been what? Butchered. There has been a death. There has been a change here. And he said, Behold, I've prepared my dinner. My ox and my fatted livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. That's invitation number two. But verse five reports that in response to invitation number two, they paid no attention, went their way, one to his farm, another to his business, and the rest, verse six, seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. Now, were any of Jesus' disciples killed in the Gospels? No. Were any of Jesus Christ's disciples killed in the book of Acts? Yes. So, invitation one, verse three, refers to the Gospels. Invitation number two, verse four, five, and six, actually shows the book of Acts when the, when the apostles preached like Peter did in Acts 2 and said the kingdom of God is here. If you, you guys crucified Christ, the times of refreshing would come, but you've got to trust in Jesus Christ. Well, the answer was no again. And they started to kill them. Now verse 7, which terminates that particular parable, look at how the parable ends. What does the king do? He said to, he, the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. What's that a prophecy of? Destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So you see this parable in seven verses? It's covering, I shouldn't say 70 years of history, it's covering 40 years of history, a testing generation worth of history. And then notice what happens. Verse 8, now we have a sort of third invitation. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding feast. And of course the parable goes on to teach other things. But that's sort of like an invitation number three, but to whom is that invitation given? It's given to anybody out in the highways. People who were not part of the family, people who were not in there. Now, what do you suppose that's a prophecy of? That's a prophecy of the gospel going to whom? The Gentiles, going outside of Israel. So, in these verses, Jesus foretold the whole story here. It's all inscripturated. So, not, there's no accidents in history. God works his plan. It looks chaotic to us, but there's a plan functioning there. And that's good. Because that gives us the hope that no matter how chaotic our lives may be, behind it all there's a plan. God still reigns, no matter what the appearance is. We don't go by appearances, we go by the Word of God. So, that's Matthew 22. That takes us up historically to Acts chapter 2. Now what we want to do is we want to look at, at how Peter... Uh, how Paul, rather, and Luke handle the rest of the book of Acts. So what we're going to do is a fast survey of the rest of the book of Acts here. We're only going to cover some highlights tonight. But here's Acts. Here it starts in chapters 1 and 2 with Pentecost. And here's Peter 
And here's invitation number two that goes to Israel. Now, as we know from the book of Acts, what shortly happens? Who is the first martyr that's reported in, the, in Acts? Stephen. And what chapter is Stephen in? Six, seven, somewhere in there? So here we have Stephen, and he's killed. So, ah, what did Matthew 22 say? They're going to kill the people that are inviting them to the kingdom. What happens, and who is standing there as Stephen's being stoned to death? There's a guy out there by the name of Saul, who becomes Paul. And what is Paul's mission for the rest of the book of Acts? He's the guy that goes out and leads the church into the byways and the highways to bring the people, the Gentiles. So along about Acts 7, 6, 7, and 8, right in here, this is a critical point in the book of Acts, the story changes. Now the emphasis in the book of Acts is to spread out because what had God told the church in Acts 1. Let's remember, open to Acts 1, and you remember what Jesus said, his parting words. Verse 8. He says, uh, verse, look like verse 7 again. It's good for us to remind it. Remember they asked, are you going to get the kingdom to us now? And in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority. But, he said, see, because that's, from the human point of view, it's contingent. Whether the kingdom comes or the kingdom doesn't come that in that era is up to their response. Well, now in verse 8, he says, I can tell you one thing that's going to happen. I can't tell you about the kingdom, but I can tell you one thing that's going to happen. That is, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. And then he rose into heaven. That's his last words of the Lord Jesus. And what happens, what does Acts do? Acts starts out geographically where? Starts out in Jerusalem. Okay? By the end of Acts, where is all this? It's in Rome. It's all over the whole Levant, all over the Mediterranean area. So the spread out has occurred. Now, from what you know of the book of Acts, was the church and was all this missionary activity going on, but that we see by the end of the book of Acts, let's think about the big picture now. You start here in Jerusalem, by the end of the story, you're going all over the world. How did that happen? Did that happen because Paul, Peter, and John, and James sat down and planned it? Do you see any evidence that these guys planned it that way? No. In fact, they would have still been in Jerusalem had God not started persecution and drove them out. This is not a flattering picture of us in the church. Jesus Christ prophesied the church would do something. And it turns out, Luke says, as he documents this, this spreading out, it all occurred because God literally had to kick the church in the behind through persecution. It wasn't, it's not flattering. It's not that the church was so deeply and profoundly spiritual. It was rather that there were great individuals in there, but the church as a whole had to be prodded, pushed, kicked, 
persecuted before it just was forced to move out and become refugees. If you'll turn in the notes, there's a, there's a table in here that we're going to follow on page 36. Table number five. Table number five gives you three, what I call mini Pentecosts in the book of Acts. And we're going to look at each of those three passages tonight, just very quickly. Again, in the framework series we're doing, we're not going verse by verse as such, but we're going for the highlights. If you look at the pattern in Table 5, you see Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19. If you look at the center column, you'll see there's an event associated with each of those passages of Scripture. And in each case, what do you notice about the moving out? For Samaria, that was nearby. The Gentiles, that was further. And John's disciples were diaspora Jews that were all over the Levant. So, you have a gradual spreading in these events. And what we want to notice, because from this point on, Luke is the author. Now, this will help understanding some words which we'll use. Luke is the author, but where do you suppose Luke is getting his information from? Remember, this guy's a physician. Luke is a smart man. Some even argue that he's a Gentile. But he's a physician, and he does his homework. Luke actually researched with interviews the actors in the book of Acts before he wrote the book. He tells us this in Acts chapter 1. He tells us in Luke, in Luke chapter 1, he wrote a two-volume work, right? Luke is his volume 1, Acts is volume 2, both written by Luke. Now, Luke investigated, and you can see, because the Holy Spirit uses human beings, he doesn't cookie stamp us out where each of us are individuals and he uses our individual background language, talent, culture to do his thing and you can tell Luke is a doctor because guess which of the gospel writers tell the details of the pregnancies of Elizabeth and Mary right? who but a doctor would do that and so you have all the, all the intimate details of the pregnancies in gospel of Luke because Luke went to talk to Mary. He was a doctor. He heard about the virgin birth. He wanted to know, well, how did this happen? So you can see the human side of the authors of the Bible. This guy was curious and he checked things out. And he checked things out pretty carefully. But tonight what we want to notice about Luke is that Luke is reflecting Paul the Apostle. Because who did Luke travel with? He traveled not with Peter. He traveled with Paul. And that means that through Luke and the authorship of the rest of the Bible, after you get through Peter's speeches in Acts 2 and 3, that's about it. Now you have Peter interacting. But the framework of the book is Paul's thought. And there's a transform here. There's an expansion. It's not that Peter's wrong. Peter was right in Acts 2 and 3 to do what he did. It's just that because Israel rejected, the king sent his servants to where? According to plan, he sent them out into the highways and byways. Paul is one of those he sent out into the highways and byways. So what we want to notice here is nuances in how these events are reported. Okay, let's turn to Acts 8. In Acts 8, you have one of the first uh, uh, cases of conversion. 
By the way, notice in the first four verses of Acts 8, here is how the church historically went out. It wasn't that they had a missionary conference and said, let's all be spiritual and we'll go out and evangelize the world. Here's the real story. This, you might say, is the church's dirty little secret. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. On that day, a great persecution rose against the church. Where? In Jerusalem. So guess what the church has to do if there's a persecution in Jerusalem? Has to leave. See? Jesus said, I'm going to get you out there one way or the other. Do it my way or do it my way. Got two choices. So, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, isn't that coincidental? What was Jesus' words? You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea. Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He put them in prison. Real nice guy. Therefore, and notice, this is Luke now. Remember, Luke, Saul has become Paul by the time this text is written. And Paul probably told Luke, yeah, Luke, this is what I used to do before I became a Christian. I was a murderer and I was a persecutor. This is what I did to the church. So Luke's getting this stuff firsthand from Paul. But notice when Luke goes to narrate verse 4, he connects it with the word, therefore. Now why do you suppose he puts something like that in there? Because, you see, he's interpreting Pentecost and subsequent events in the light of the plan of God. That God has a plan here. So no matter what happens, Paul may think he's trying to stop the church. Why was Paul doing verse 3 stuff? Because he was trying to kill off the church. It was a threat to Judaism. So, therefore, those who have been scattered, preaching the word. And then they give an example. Philip. And now we have, uh, going down into uh, verse 9, there was a certain man in the Simeon, what, uh, so they come now to the city, who was formerly practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be somebody great. And they all from the smallest to the greatest were giving attention to him. This man is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he'd been for so long astonishing them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the gospel or the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike, and even Simon himself believed. And after being believed, he continued with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles. He was constantly amazed. What does this text suggest to you by way of a little observation about the power of the gospel? It's a little observation, see. Luke is watching something here. Now, Luke traveled all around. He saw all the charlatans. What he sees is, he, he, he says in verse 9, that here's Simon astonishing people with his black magic. I mean, this is like the guys that go to Haiti. Remember the missionaries that came in, what the, the goofball stuff that goes on in Haiti? See, the same kind of voodoo stuff. And verse 11, he had astonished them. See, repetitious of the verb. So here's a guy that really is one of Satan's magicians. But then once, once there's the gospel coming in verse 12 and verse 13, here's the guy who was the, who was the slick performance artist saying, wow, you know, I can't do these things. Years ago, I don't know if he's still in the ministry, but I remember in Campus Crusade for Christ, there was a guy by Andre Cole. 
And Andre Cole was a professional magician. And one of the things that led him to Christ was as a professional magician and a, and a basically magic, that, that kind of magic, not the demonic kind, the fun kind, is really deception. You know, while you're looking at the hand, the other hand's doing things, and all kinds of stuff, and they're, they're great deceivers. And Andre Cole was on television and everything else. He was a professional musician. I guess he still is. And what led him to Christ was when he studied the Gospels and he saw the miracles that Jesus Christ did as a professional magician, he looked at that and said, this guy's for real. I, you know, as a magician, I know all the tricks. I know how we do things. But this guy wasn't a magician. That was genuine stuff. And he has all kinds of testimonies to that effect. And it's the same kind of thing here. The genuineness of transforming power of the gospel convinces the guys who, who are the, the charlatans. But the in thing we want to look at tonight is what follows this thing. We, we're not going, we, our object tonight is not to exegete Acts 8. It's just to point out some things. Verse 14. Now notice what happens. You've had evangelism occur. You've had successful evangelism occur. And when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria received the word of God, they sent them down, Peter and John. So they're sending apostolic representatives from Jerusalem into Samaria. And you remember the background? Jews didn't get along with Samaritans. Why? Samaritans are half-breeds. Remember, they were, they, historically, well, what was the Samaritans? They were the guys, part Gentile, that the rulers in 586 had brought into that land 728-710-2 when the kingdom fell they were colonized Gentile colony colonization and they intermarried with Jews and they became half-breeds that were really looked down upon that's why you remember that parable of the good Samaritan why did Jesus pick a Samaritan out? just to insult religious self-righteous people and say hey uh, here's a Samaritan the kind of guy you despise remember the parable? Good Samaritan gave first aid, and all the priests went right by this poor guy bleeding to death inside the road. So Jesus was was playing that, and then of course you have the, the Jesus interaction with a woman at the well. I mean, of all things, in John four, if you know history, the two things that are in, that are really stand out from the text is Jesus, as a rabbi in public, is talking to a woman alone, as a rabbi. So that was a that was an icebreaker. And then, for him to be talking to a Samaritan woman. And then, to be talking to a woman who's, you know, been shacking up with five or six guys. Didn't care. Jesus didn't care. She was made in God's image, and she, he was going to lead her, to the, lead her to himself. So, you know, fooly on you if you don't like it. So, there's Samaria. Okay, now, the apostles come down, and in verse 15... It stated that they came the holy that in order to give them the Holy Spirit, for he had not fallen on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of our Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And Simon saw the Spirit was bestowed. Now, verse seventeen doesn't tell us they spoke in languages here, but they did something because Simon's sitting there and he concludes something's happening here. Something happened in here that wasn't happening when they got baptized. So you have an event that mimics what happened at Pentecost. It's like there's a Samaritan version of mini Pentecost. 
And again, if you look at the chart, page 36, that's what happens. The Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. Now if we go to Acts 10, we'll see the next little one of these events that happen. And you remember, this was reluctantly done because now the star of this story is a Roman Cornelius, Gentile, and uh, we got a worse problem, the Samaritans now. Now Peter doesn't want to go to the Gentiles because they're unclean. So, God has to deal with it. And notice in verse 17 of Acts 10, there's a whole prelude to this event. And we mustn't, we mustn't um, minimize this. Because Peter has having a problem. He's the apostolic representative. He's already gone to Samaria. And you know, that must have shorted his circuits for a while to see that the Holy Spirit came on these people like they came on us. What's the story here? I mean, this is talking about the uh, Albanians and the in Kosovo with the Serbians. That would be like one of those culture barriers. Or black and white or something. Now, here we've got a worse problem. Now we've got people that are wholly unclean. So Peter's having this difficulty. And who's writing this? Luke. He's writing this years after this happened. And he's looking back and he's saying, Look. Do you see the trouble we have had as the church? It's God the Holy Spirit that's empowering the church to do this, to do this, to do this, because if it was left to us, we'd still be in Jerusalem. So here's the testimony of the moving of the Holy Spirit. And that's why, you know, it's discomforting because the Holy Spirit has a way of moving us into our zones where we we have our comfort zones. And He always likes to push us outside of the comfort zone. And he does that just like a mother bird knocks her babies out of the nest because they've got to fly someday, folks. You know, we've got to be big boys and girls and trust the Lord here. And it's not comfortable to do that. So that's what verse 17 following is all about. It's discomfort because God is moving us to get out into an area that we're not used to anymore. It's not comfortable. We're not used to this kind of stuff. But the Lord's immutable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Promises are still true. Casting all our care upon Him, for He cares for us. So they haven't changed. So we hold on to that which doesn't change and get our stability there to move into the areas where it's chaotic. So, they come down to Caesarea. And the story goes on. um, Verse 24, verse 25... Uh, Cornelius, in verse 30, represents four days ago, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. A man stood before me in shining garments. He said, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send a job and invite Simon Peter to come to you. So I sent you. You've been kind enough to come. Now we're all here. We want you to tell us what, what we're supposed to do here. And, you know, Peter opened his mouth. <laughs> That's good. And he say, duh. Here, here, I've been thinking this through. And here's what he says. And and notice this, because this is a transition in the book of Acts. I certainly understand that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears Him and does what is right is welcome to Him. That is a breakthrough, a cultural breakthrough for Peter. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, 
see, there's his Judaism coming out. Preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism. You know of Jesus of Nazareth. So he recites the facts about Jesus Christ. We are witnesses, verse 39. These are true facts about Jesus. What did we just say in the framework course? We're talking about event and doctrine. Event and doctrine. Event and doctrine. Because our truths are contingent upon the truthfulness of history. And we are witnesses of all the things that he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death. God raised him up. See, it's a recitation. It's just a recitation of the Gospels. And you see verse 38, well, verse 37, verse 38, verse 39, verse 40, verse 41, and verse 42. If you summarize those verses from verse 37 to 42, notice that they recapitulate in a compressed way the Gospels and Acts. And you see, Luke wrote Luke and Luke wrote Acts and those two books together are really summarized in verses 37 to 42. See how he got the idea? It's because all he's doing is he's, he's putting into writing in Luke and Acts what the apostles kept telling everybody. While Peter was still speaking these words, now look what happens. What do you observe happening in verse 44 that is different from what happened in Acts 8? Let's watch this. Now, this is important because we have people wanting to go back into Acts and try to say there's a normal pattern here the church has to follow. Not so. Here's Acts 8. Here's Acts 10. Now what had to happen before the Holy Spirit was given to these people in Acts 8? The apostles had to come there and pray for them. So, you have... The, they believed. This is the point that the Samaritans believed. Then the apostles came. Then the apostles prayed for them. And here is where they received the Holy Spirit. In Acts 10, you have the apostles coming first. They're preaching the gospel. And while they are preaching the gospel, the Spirit comes. And they evidently believe at the same time. See, Acts 10 is different than Acts 8. And this is something you want to notice. There's no normalization occurring in the book of Acts. So be careful. You can't just go diving in the book of Acts and say, here, here's the way the Holy Spirit works. Because he works differently in different situations in the book of Acts. Okay. So while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed. Because see, now we've got another culture shock happening. See what the Holy Spirit's doing in the book of Acts? When Luke writes this book, he's saying, Boy, guys, I have to tell you, the Holy Spirit has worked in our lives for four decades to get our eyes straightened out and get out of the Old Testament mode of Israel and into the New Testament mode of the church. There's a dispensational shift that happens here. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with languages and exalting God. So here's an explicit reference to another Pentecost. So in Acts 8, you have the Samaritan Pentecost. In Acts 10, you have the Gentile Pentecost. Now we go to Acts 19. 
a third incident in the book of Acts. And in Acts 1, this is in Greece now. So the church has already gone out of Judea, it's already gone through Samaria, now it's in the uttermost parts of the world, just as Jesus prophesied. Now we're in Greece, now it's Paul. Now what's interesting about this is that Acts 19 occurs when Luke is not with Paul. I know, that sounds like a little minor point, but let me show you the importance of that in Bible interpretation. Here's Acts 19. Paul is observing this. And he reports that this event takes place in a certain way. How is a certain way? Well, let's look at it. Having passed through the upper country, he came to Ephesus and he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. That sounds like a lot of people today. And he said, Well, into what then were you baptized? Into John's baptism. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came and they began to speak with tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 of these guys. Well, now what we've got is an example of Old Testament saints becoming New Testament saints. If there's ever a clear situation where you can watch what goes on between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's Acts 19. And what's interesting about Acts 19 is that Luke isn't around. So if you look down in verse... um, And he's using the word glossa which is the word for language. But Luke has used this word over in Acts 2, hasn't he? Well, this proves that Paul, when Paul uses glossa, he is saying the same thing as Luke when he uses glossa. And we already know how Luke uses glossa because in Acts 2, glossa is referring to what? Known or unknown languages. Known language. They're human languages, unknown to the speakers, but they were known to the people who heard them. Therefore, when Paul uses glossa in his epistles, what is he using it for? Known or unknown languages. He's using it the same way Luke used it. So, here we have a case where we have a third mini Pentecost witnessing in a small little way, repeating this Pentecostal phenomena. Okay. This is telling us something about the church's expansion. So if you look in your notes now, on page 36, we now get introduced to the baptism of the Spirit. And John prophesied this, but if you'll turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, This is later developed by Paul. And this is the signal that something has changed in the book of Acts and the way it started. 
Jesus and John had spoken of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you get to Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he's going through all the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church. And you'll notice that he uses the word baptism for the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. And he says, By one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit, for the body is not one member, but, and so forth. Here is the early indication that the doctrine of the universal church has been created. Now it is recognized that in the book of Acts we have some new thing and it's called the church. Now by the word church here, or klesklesia, we refer to not an organization. This is the set of all believers. Okay? That's what the word church means here. Baptized into one body. This is not talking about, I mean... There's an organization. Obviously, every local church has an organization. We, we have to have an organization because the state requires the income tax records and you know, somebody has to be responsible for that. And, but the problem is that there's a visible church and an invisible church. Okay? The invisible church, this is the universal, sometimes some writers call it the invisible church. Not because it's invisible, but because it can't be identified with any one particular organization. It is the group of all people who have genuinely trusted in Jesus Christ. You could have two people in Timbuktu. There's not a church building in Timbuktu. Is the church in Timbuktu? Well, yeah, because there's two people that are believers in Timbuktu. So, therefore, the church can exist where there's no buildings. It can exist where there's no organization. On the other hand, let's look at it another way. Can you have a church that's corrupted and that goes through the motions and have people that are religious but not believers? Yeah. So, you, that's why writers have sometimes used this word invisible church to refer to this referring to the fact that this refers to believers who have personally trusted in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. You know, we have all, if we're Christians tonight, every one of us has had a point in their life where they've trusted in Jesus Christ. That was when you joined the, this church. Now, you might have been baptized as an infant in a particular denominational church and you were a member organizationally of that, but that's not what this is about. When Paul says in verse 13, by one spirit we are baptized into one body, he doesn't care whether male, female, slaves or free, Jews or Greeks. And that's the lesson that is coming out of the book of Acts, that there is the church universal, meaning it transcends all cultural lines. And it's tragic, but down through church history, we've always had to fight this. And it's understandable. People of the same race and of the same culture feel more comfortable with each other. And so they tend to gravitate. So you have a white church. You have a Korean church. You have a black church. You have a Chinese church. And you can see it in metropolitan areas. And it's understandable, but there's, a, there's something wrong, too, about that. I mean, look at, the, look at our church. I mean, do we have any multicultural people in our church? I don't think so. And 
it, it testifies to something lacking. One of the great Jewish Christians of all time in, in, the, in the 20th century was Leopold Cohen, who, who started the board, uh, American Board of Missions of the Jews. And he wrote a little track that's very interesting. It's titled, What It Has Cost the Church to Withhold the Gospel from the Jews. And you read the track, he says, had the church evangelized Jews all through the centuries, the church never would have been amillennial. Because the Jewish people would have automatically corrected that bad theology. They would have known, any Jew would have known that Israel means Israel. It doesn't mean Gentiles, it means Israel. And it would have saved the church all this fighting about eschatology. But the church didn't evangelize the Jew. Persecuted the Jew in, in medieval times, in modern times. Reformation, reformers did it. Um, so it, it's a tragedy that that happens. But we want to learn that out of this comes the idea that what was going on in Acts, those baptisms were signals by Jesus Christ, the Father's right hand, that he intended to save people out of every nation, every tongue, every language, every culture. And there's not such thing as a preferred culture here, preferred culture there. There's no special privileges for Americans in the body of Christ. It's only whether we trust in Christ or not. The lowest... Uh, humblest little peasant believer in some far off land has as equal opportunity to come before the throne of Jesus Christ in prayer as anybody else no matter what they are Calvin, Luther, Christosom, Augustine the little peasant has just as much access to Jesus Christ as that person you see so that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that's what came out of that Finally, we want to start tonight, we won't have time to finish it, but down at the bottom of, of page 37 on the notes is the third thing I want to point out about this, um, uh, this, this area. Not only do we have the baptism of the Spirit, which we'll get into and develop a little bit more as we get into the last section, but we want to get into the fact that in Acts, the apostles have special privileges. So I've entitled that, Languages, Prophesying, and Miracles. If you look at bottom of page 37, where I say there's another line of revelation developed by Luke and Paul concerns the unique phenomena that accompanied this coming of the Spirit. Miraculous speaking in languages unknown to the speaker, revelation of things present and future, unknowable to ordinary human beings, amazing works of bodily healing. And these phenomena were all given as signs to the gospel. The languages, next paragraph. Why do you suppose that the gospel came with this supernatural ability to speak in languages in this book of Acts? To show what about the gospel? That it wasn't confined to Hebrew, Aramaic, and Koine Greek. The gospel could be freely spoken and communicated to all the languages of the world. God intended it that way. You see, that's what Islam doesn't do. Do you realize that in Islam, to cite a good example, they do not believe that the Word of God can be read in any other language than Arabic. You can go to the prisons, as I have, in Pennsylvania, and you will see people who almost are illiterate, desperately trying to learn how to write Arabic because they become Muslims. 
They can't write English, leave alone Arabic. But this is the demand of Islam. If you really want to know the Word of God, you've got to learn Arabic, because Allah speaks in Arabic, period. Doesn't speak in English. That's why the lady from Iran became a Christian. She was six years old. Her daddy was one of the leading theologians in Iran. And she had the sense, at age six, living in this theology professor's home, to ask herself, wait a minute, I am an Iranian. I speak Farsi. That's my language. And if Allah can't speak to me in Farsi, then Allah's got a speech problem. And I want to talk to a God who can speak in Farsi. And she went down to the corner library one day in downtown Tehran and stumbled her foot on a little book. And that book turned out to be the Bible written in Farsi. That's how she became a Christian. God used that. See, the gospel is for every people, everywhere, in all languages. Well, then we have prophecy. What's the purpose of prophecy? The purpose of prophecy is to reveal new truths. There was a whole new set of revelation that had to be given. So that's why we have prophecy. We have the miracles and the signs that were given. But what I want to concentrate on in conclusion tonight is down at the bottom of page 38, it is the New Testament point that these were temporarily given to the church. Now this is a controversial topic, I know, but this is the classic Protestant position. Protestantism has always believed in this word, good vocabulary word, cessation. That means that the gifts given to the church in its founding period ceased and were not reflected down through history. Now, careful, careful here. That does not saying that miracles ceased. It is not saying that God can't heal today. What it is saying is that you do not have an apostle that could walk by all of these chairs and every time his handkerchief fell out on somebody, they'd be healed. That happened. That's the power of the apostles early in their careers. That sort of miracle ceased. The question is why. First, I want to take you quickly to some verses, and we're going to pick up here next week. But the verse that I want to turn to is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. And we'll come back to more of these. I want to give you some food for thinking here. This is not a small sub-issue, by the way, folks. I'm not belaboring this because I want to stir up controversy. There are some serious logical consequences that come out if you do not believe in cessation. If you do believe in cessation, there are other consequences that happen. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, notice the verb tenses. This is an epistle written later on in church history in the first century. Notice that it's talking about the gospel context, verse 3. Then it says in verse 4, God also bearing witness with them by signs and wonders, by various miracles, and by gifts of the Spirit according to His own will. Now, that is a clause that amplifies the previous main verb, which is found at the end of verse 3. What is the main verb found at the end of verse 3? It's confirmed by those who heard. Is that present tense 
or is that a past tense? That is a past tense. Meaning that the confirmation of the gospel was completed by the time of the authorship of the book of Hebrews. The confirmation is done, over, out, finished. And we'll see that in, in other verses. So, we are introduced now with the fact that not only does the church shift during the book of Acts, from the, the emphasis shift from Israel to the church, Acts also reports all these exciting miracles that gradually phase out when something happens. What is the something that happens that all this gets phased out? It's not like God left the church. And he's with us. But he does something differently. And that's what we want to look at next week. Or not next Thursday, excuse me. Two weeks from tonight. We want to look at this cessation. Why has apostleship ceased? Why have the ability of the apostles and the leaders of the church to do these super, super miraculous acts ceased? doesn't mean we can't pray for God to heal people. God still does that. It's just he doesn't do it that way so that it's a sign of the gospel. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you provide for our needs. We ask that your Holy Spirit continue to illuminate our hearts to your scriptures. And we ask that you would remind us as we live our lives throughout each day to look to you and to convict us of our sin when we turn away when we forget, when we become preoccupied with all the details of life and fail to think about your promises, your larger plan for our lives, the fact that for all eternity our futures are secure, for the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells us, that he has baptized us into Jesus Christ, and he's done many wonderful things. And yet, every day we forget these things and get so rooted and concentrating on all the little details that come along and fail to perceive your grace working in our lives. We ask you to keep, us, keep on reminding us of this in Christ's name. Amen. We have a few uh, moments here for some Q&A for those who want to hang on for a little while. Um, now that we have Debbie here, she can get us started again. <laughs> Missed you last week, Debbie. <laughs> so, um, we have just a few minutes here. Would, is there any questions that, um, on the stuff that we went over that you'd like to bring up? Um, we're getting access, it gets kind of complicated, so um, don't feel lost when we get into this. But there's, there's transitions that are quite subtle in here. And I think you can see why I spent the time on reform versus dispensational theology, because you're going to start seeing the changes and shifts that start happening in the book of Acts. So, anybody have any questions? Yes, Ted. About now I'm looking at that, you can see where if, if God had done that, then um, it probably would have been harder for the Jews to even see that the message was for the whole world or that the, the you know, um, that they're, you know, to make us one as far as there's not Jew nor Greek, but all one in Christ. Where if it had just been the one that happened in Jerusalem, the original Pentecost, 
Yeah, that's a, a good point that he's making about the fact that had God not done it that way, can you imagine what kind of a problem they'd have? Because who was involved in the first Pentecost? It was all Jewish people. You see? So, to, to where was the breakout? The breakout probably would never have happened had that culture transformed not happened. So, that was it. And you'll notice that took years. Those events, we, we just whipped through them, you know, in a matter of minutes. But those events are separated by years of time. And uh, you can see every time it happened, there was a big, you know, guys had to have their, their thoughts straightened out. It was not a comfortable thing for the church to go through. But by the time you get down to the end, it's clear that the church is there now. The church is universal. The church is going into all the world. Jesus' words have been fulfilled. So you want to see that that's the big movement that you go here. And there's lots of other stuff in the book of Acts. I mean, I'm, I'm just... Um, just covering that one theme. But um, the other thing that I wanted to, to, that you'll see, if you'll look at the um, passages in the cessation thing as you, for next time when you read, the reason that is important is because there's three or four streams inside Christianity that don't um, emphasize cessation and get in trouble because they don't. And then I want to also point out there's a caricature of cessation. Um, the caricature is often that if you believe in cessation, that is, these gifts, these marvelous capacities of the apostles stopped, that therefore you don't believe in miracles today. Well, that's, that's not true. That's not a logical conclusion. We're saying things very carefully. We're saying that the sign gifts and those offices went away. Now, the, what that leads to is sola scriptura. Because, you see, if there's not prophecies, there's not those sign miracles, uh, there are not those other things, then the, what we have left is the scripture. And that's what came out of the Protestant Reformation, sola scriptura. It's not saying that there wasn't traditions left in the church. It's just saying that we don't know, we can't, we're powerless today to know Jesus Christ in any other way than through the scriptures. Because how do you tell, you know, some group has this or some group has that. How do you tell whether that's apostolic or not? You can't. So you're left with sola scriptura. The obvious uh, groups within the Christ, Christian, quote, Christian gr uh, classification, Roman Catholicism, of course, believes in the continuation of what they call the magisterium. That is, the apostolic authority is passed down through the church, through the bishops. And then the bishops get together and go to the cardinals, and the cardinals get, get higher until you get to the pope. So you have this continuing tradition, the authority of the church that gave us the scriptures and therefore uh, can interpret the scriptures in the, in, the, in the final sense. And the problem that that had led to historically was the Protestant Reformation. What do you do when the church goes corrupt? If the church is the ultimate authority, then corruption in the church can't be addressed. The church, corruption has to be addressed by some standard other than the church. And what is that other standard but the scriptures? And that's what got the ball rolling in the Protestant Reformation. 
So it's a very important thing that comes out of this. Another example of that would be Mormonism. Mormonism believes in the restoration of the church of the Latter-day Saints. I mean, think about the title. But what do they mean by Latter-day Saints? They mean the restoration of the church through Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith supposedly was empowered by the angels and he had spectacles that he translated it from Egyptian hieroglyphics. and All kinds of stuff goes on there. But the point is that if you have a continuing authority that can amend or add to Scripture, you do not have sola scriptura. You've got another authority added to the Scriptures, which in practice always eat up the Scriptures. Now, Protestantism hasn't done any much better because what Protestantism has done is allowed liberal theology and unbelief to come in so now here I am, a lay Christian, sitting here reading my Bible, and I can't read it because I've got to listen to what the scholars say. Well now, excuse me. Why do I have to listen to what some scholar says who doesn't believe in it, who tries to reconstruct it, like Peter Jennings' program on ABC, searching for Jesus? They're going to be searching for Jesus for all eternity. They haven't found him, and they're not going to find him. Not the way they're searching. So, what you have injected, see again, think of the subtlety. In between, visualize yourself and the the Bible. It's not saying that this is our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. But this is the book that he has written into history, the instructions to get to him. That's his letter. The letter isn't him, but the letter is him talking to us. So, visualize every one of these when you have a cult like, say, the Mormons, where you have a church in between. So here you are, here's the Bible, and there's something in between you. That's a violation of Sola Scriptura. And that's the same thing with Roman Catholicism. This is how you get Mary as the mediatrix between... uh, That's a thing. You don't find Mary being the mediatrix in the Scriptures, but that's a tradition that's developed inside the Church, the Roman Catholic Church. So that's the problem that's going on. And then finally, within our own circles, what, te- what can happen in evangelical circles is historically we've had the charismatic movement in three ways. We had the early Pentecostal movement in the 1901, starting in Azusa Street in, in California. And that was the case. It was, that was all right. The old Pentecostals were pretty good people. Um, They believed in speaking in tongues as an unknown language. We would differ with their interpretation. But they were godly people and they held to the scriptures and so forth. What happened, however, in the 60s was we had phase two. We had what was called then the neo-charismatic movement, which spread into all denominations, including Catholics. Uh, The denomination I came out of was was an Episcopalian church, and we had, had it there had it all over the place. And what started to happen in the 60s was a dilution of truthfulness and the mysticism. You you know Christ through this mystical experience. Well, it is a kind of mystical experience, but I know him because of this. I come into contact with Jesus through reading what he wrote to me. That's how the Spirit is poured out. So where you have this emphasis of people going off and thinking that they're getting closer to Jesus by this super show of miracles or this or that, 
what eventually will happen, if you watch it long enough, that becomes a substitute for the Scriptures. Always happens. It's happened time and time again in church history. You don't need to, you know, argue about it. It's just, it's always there. Just give it long enough time and something else will replace the Scriptures. And we're, in a small way, we're in danger of it in all our churches today. Because we have our little liturgy, you know, we go through our thing. Nothing wrong with that. But if we concentrate, we have, you know, picnics, and we have basketball games, we have all the rest. That's all nice fellowship. But how we come to know Jesus Christ is controlled in all those activities, or ought to be, by the Word of God. And one area that's in conflict in, in many evangelical areas right now is music. There's a lot of folks who are Christian musicians who are debating among themselves whether something has happened in the 20th century to our hymnology. And what they're arguing about and thinking about and rethinking about Christian music is not that you, know, you have to have Beethoven or something. He wasn't even a believer. The issue is, if you go into the older hymns in the Scripture and you look at the content, you'll notice that the people who wrote those older hymns are directing your attention to God and Jesus Christ. If you look at the later hymns, it's my experience of Jesus is this, and I want to share it with you. That's fine, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ, not another person's experience. You'll, you, know, you have your own private experience with Jesus. So you don't need to come through my experience with Jesus to get to Jesus. And you don't have to go to the hymn writer's experience of Jesus to get to Jesus. You can go directly to Jesus. And there's just a subtlety there. And it's not true of all, all modern Christian music. I mean, Steve Green and some of these guys are very careful. But I'm just saying that there's tendencies. So we can't be proudful and say, ooh, look at the Roman Catholics. Or ooh, look at the Mormons. It's, it's something we have to be vigilant about in our own own circles to always think the only criteria that I have for judging my personal behavior, the behavior of my neighbor, the way we conduct ourselves as a group is by the scripture. We mustn't ever forget that because it's ceased. We don't have any additions. There's no Revelation 23. And there's nobody around qualified to write Revelation chapter 23. So that's the issue of cessation. And there's a big footnote in the notes that I put there. If you look at that footnote, that's what that footnote's all about. It's just to alert you that this is not some personal crusade of mine. It's just to point out a, a facet of church history. Protestantism has generally been cessationist. And where it's drifted, it's always gotten in trouble. Lesson from the Reformation. Okay. George, comment? Yeah, I was just uh, thinking about Acts, um, about how incredible it is that, and, and what a testimony to the truth that it is, that it will point out Peter's failings as far as wanting to embrace the Gentiles, having the, uh, um, you know, falling back into Judaism, mm -hmm. being corrected by Paul, pointing out the
as he's writing the I know. Good point. I know. Isn't that interesting? Very good point, George. The dirty laundry of the church is all there in the scripture. And uh, you know, how would you like it if, if you were involved in one of those incidents? So put yourself in Peter's position, denying the Lord. Was that something that you really would like paraded about for 20 centuries? You know, think about, think about it. You know, he's sitting there in heaven, and I'm sure, you know, the Lord's blessed him and so on. But he's, now every generation of Christians that go to heaven... Uh, oh, yeah, you're the guy that denied Jesus. I mean, think about that. And so he has to come to grips with that in his personal life. And it's all there in the row. David, I had a seminary professor who taught me one time, he had a great slogan. When God paints a picture of man, he paints a picture of him, warts and all. And that's encouraging to me. I always get encouragement out of the Bible because I'm not the only guy with the warts. Okay, well, we'll see you in two weeks.